This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We are coming to you today in front of an audience at the LifeWorks Northwest Center in Tigard. We are here for the first installment of a series of conversations we're planning for over the course of this year. We're going to be focusing on some of the most pressing problems that Oregonians are facing, along with some promising solutions. We've come here to LifeWorks because we're going to begin today with a conversation about youth mental health. And Massimo Marola starts us off. He is a student at Oregon State University who is a client in the LifeWorks Northwest ESA program. It stands for Early Assessment and Support Alliance. It provides support for teens and young adults who are experiencing the early signs of psychosis. Massimo, welcome and thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. My understanding is that, going back in time a little bit, the the first time that you went to an emergency room due to psychiatric symptoms, it was because you had flagged down a car and you asked the driver to call 911 for you. What happened next? Uh, From there, I had a, uh, basically told me to sit on the curb. (laughs) The driver did? Yes, yeah. And from there I sat and I waited for uh, basically a cop arrived and he, you know, had to do a few questions, preliminary stuff, and just uh, checked in with me, made sure, you know, trying to assess the situation. And then from there he took me to the hospital and I, I don't know, I felt very grateful for that. I still think, uh, I think kindly of him. Uh, I think our audience knows that things don't always end well when people in the middle of psychotic episodes interact with police officers. But for you, this, this worked. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not like I, you know, he just had to do his checks and get through, and uh, it was nice. I mean, on the way there, he was asking me certain basic questions. What's your name? You know, are you at Oregon State? Like, what are you doing right now? And of course, for me, it's always a complicated question. It's like, I'm here, but I'm not a student. I'm doing an internship. And so. What was, more broadly, what was going on in your life at that time? What were you experiencing? In that moment? Yeah. Uh, at that time, the, the only thing that was really going on was the extreme paranoia. I had been losing sleep the day prior. Um, I mean, the day prior, I actually texted my uh, mentor at the time because I was doing the internship and just let him know, hey, I'm not coming in today. I need a mental health. And uh, from there, it just, uh, you know, it kept spiraling. I, I sat on the couch. Hours went by, and I didn't, you know, realize it was, you know, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And I was like, well, shoot, <laughs> this wasn't a mental health day. And something's, you know, something's going wrong. So, hmm. and that night seemed to get worse. And yeah, when I left the building, I no longer had the key to get back in, and I didn't have a phone on me. I couldn't reach out to my parents. They were in another, they were on vacation at the time. So, one thing led to another, and it was just getting worse and worse. And I realized how bad my memory was, and uh, I figured at that point it's probably to get some, time to get some serious help. So, and then you were at the hospital, right? Yeah. Did you get helpful help at the hospital? <laughs> Yes and no. It was uh, a very interesting experience because I tried to describe, you know, I'm like, look, I know that things probably coming out of my mouth right now don't make any sense, but I'm like, it could be a lack of sleep or it could be I'm a psychopath, which at the time was kind of my narrative that stuck in my head with the paranoia. No. How long was it before you ended up in the, the ESA program through LifeWorks Northwest? That wasn't until much later, uh, 
postdoc. So come October, I had to go back to, you know, emergency services. And then uh, that time period, that's right around when Kylie came along sometime after that. For me, I, I can't <laughs> time time around October to January is quite fuzzy for me. Was anything helping you at that time? In between that time period? Exactly. Be before you met Kylie, who we're going to meet in, in just a second. Um, <laughs> I was just along the ride as far as between hallucinations and just trying to endure some of the stuff. So. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Kylie. Kylie is an occupational therapist in the ESA program um, at LifeWorks Northwest. Kylie, what's your starting point when you meet a client for the first time? Well, one of the roles that I've had on the ESA team has been what we call the screener. So I've been the person who will meet a family or a young person for the first time to see if they qualify and if they'd be a good fit for what we do. Um, I'd also receive the referral. So when somebody's asking for help, um, I'll respond to that um, as soon as possible within 24 hours or a business day. Um, and so I don't quite remember uh, who I got the referral from. It might have been from Massimo's mom directly. Um, and I ended up calling and talking with Massimo's mom and then um, finding out that he was in the hospital. So uh, then I figured out a way to go and visit Massimo and coordinate with the hospital there. My understanding is that one of the things that you sometimes do um, when you go to a hospital, go to a hospital room, is, is to turn the overhead lights down. Yeah. Why do you right. do that? Yeah. So in psychosis, actually, it's really common that people have different sensory experiences. So um, oftentimes they're highly sensitive to things like light and sound and movement around them. Um, and when I came into the hospital room, I noticed that Massimo was laying in bed with his eyes closed and um, kind of frozen um, there with his arms outstretched. And so I wondered, hmm, is the overhead light way too stimulating right now? So I turned off the light and it helped a lot. Mm. Massimo, how much do you remember about that first meeting? Not too much. I can say that that most likely happened and I have some vague memory of perhaps, you know, it being extremely bright and then now I'm not being blinded, so. <laughs> Kylie, um, when you're talking with people who are dealing with psychosis, how do you handle the fact that what they are seeing or hearing feels very real to them, but not to you? How do you meet them where they are and sort of honor their experiences without, when you don't experience what they're experiencing? Yeah, good question. Well, first off, I think that we all have extreme states. So every, every person, myself included, can um, be in a place where, like, for extreme grief or um, love or joy, where maybe other people aren't going through the same thing. Um, but we can connect with that, and I can connect with that, um, and to focus on empathizing. So really listening and slowing down and looking for and listening for um, emotional content. So um, if somebody's making a comment about like, uh, how am I supposed to talk to you if you're dead? Like, wow, like that must be so hard and scary to think that I'm dead right now. 
Um, so yeah, naming those emotions and uh, connecting with people there. Massimo, for you, I mean, you said that one of the ways this would manifest itself was that, I think your word was that you thought you were a psychopath. Yes. Um, I'm not sure. I just, <laughs> for some reason, it, the dots clicked that I was like, you know, every action that I take, whether, you know, if it's through goodness or whatnot, it's through, you know, self-intent because, you know, I don't have to live a good life. You make other people happy and whatnot. So I don't know. Somehow that got twisted and then it just stuck. And uh, I don't know. It just felt like I had done something wrong. And just, I don't, I don't know. At the point, uh, you know, Kylie had referenced, you know, if someone, you know, or at least for my scenario, you know, with, uh, at that point, the hallucinations were so strong. I was just convinced. I was like, okay, reality's gone. I must be dead. This is just what's left of my memory or the afterlife or something. But, mm. so. Are there tools that you have gained from your time with Kylie that have been most helpful? Uh, absolutely. But for that time period, I mean, I, I, it's more, I feel like afterwards it was a lot of help. Just, uh, I feel like Kylie gave us a lot of hope. In what way? Um, I, reminding, <laughs> reminding us, or at least, you know, giving us the hope that I can get back to doing what I love and doing all the things that previously I liked doing. So that you would get better. Yeah. Hmm. Kylie, how do you do that? How do you give somebody hope? Mm -hmm. Name it, say it like it's really hard right now, but I have all the hope in the world that this will get better. Um, and naming examples of, uh, people in recovery that, you know, um, people go back to school, people get jobs, people feel better, they feel happy, they have friends, um, there are community members, and yeah, just continually reinforcing that. Because Massimo, at that time, you, you didn't think those things would happen, you didn't think you'd go back to school or, or go back to the version of your life that you'd had before? Potentially, yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, once I was lucid again, it was sort of like, wow, okay. So a couple months of fast. And, uh, you know, they, at the time I was on so many medications, I couldn't keep my head up straight and couldn't really watch a TV. You know, that gave me a headache. I couldn't even uh, listen to music for too long. That would also give me a headache. And it's like, so going from that to, you know, towards the end of the year, you know, we got to travel a bunch. I got to, you know, learn how to sail, drive a motorcycle. Like, those are just things that I'm like, cool. It was a really fun year of recovery. So, yeah. Kylie, what does it mean to be an occupational therapist in this setting? I, I, I think it's possible that listeners may be more familiar with the idea of occupational therapy after um, a physical injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, occupational therapy actually started as a mental health practice. Um, and we focus on the activities that people need to and want to do in their daily lives. Um, and the idea is that what we do day to day uh, brings us health and wellness, including our mental health. Um, so we start with activity. What are the activities that people want to get back to or are having a hard time with or want to do more of? And as much as possible, uh, we engage in that activity and look at ways to modify it or change um, the environment or build skills to be able to do what we need to do, um, which we all struggle with from time to time. And that can look like things like, I go and play pickleball, or um, we, um, with Massimo, for instance, we did things like 
searching on Craigslist to find housing in Corvallis. We're taking steps to return to school. We have been talking about the ESA, or Early Assessment and Support Alliance program. It's run through LifeWorks Northwest, talking with uh, Kyla McDermott, who is an occupational therapist uh, for ESA, and Massimo Marola, who uh, has been one of um, the people she has helped. Um, the program through LifeWorks Northwest is one of a whole network of ESA programs in Oregon. Tamara Sale helps organize them. She is the director of the ESA Center for Excellence, and she joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What's the big idea behind this whole set of programs? Um, the big idea is to be there when people need someone to be there in the way that they need them to be there and to believe in them and to accompany them and to help them get to where they need to go. And that includes the family as well, that we, we can't do it alone. And families need partners in the community who really understand that young people are important and we need to be there quickly and follow through in a different kind of way than we have in the past. What is the idea of focusing on this particular population? It's a very specific population of teenagers and young adults who are dealing with the, the first onset of psychosis. Why is this population at this time so important? Well, this is the point in time when people often start to develop psychosis for the first time, and it's, it's a, an incredibly important developmental point in your life where you're becoming an adult for the first time, figuring out who you are, becoming um, employed, having relationships beyond your family. Yeah, so those are all incredibly important tasks. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of experience and research that's shown that without early intervention programs, People often go for a year or more before they receive any kind of care. And then when they do get care, often it's involuntarily, which means that the police get involved sometimes in a very negative way. And fortunately, it sounds like your experience was more positive. But um, it, it can be extremely traumatizing for people. And they lose, they lose their connections, their relationships, their roles. They drop out of school. Um, and that affects your entire adult life, you know, so it's incredibly important that someone is there to support you through that process. How do you measure the effectiveness of these programs? So uh, it's, it's about continuity in the person's life. So, you know, most of the time when someone comes to us, they're either still in school or they're just finishing high school they're figuring out what they want to do next. So um, the continuity is really important. You know, so they're continuing with what they, they had started or figuring out where to go next. Um, another thing that's incredibly important is the connections to their family and to the people who care about them. So we're trying to preserve those because people don't automatically understand what's going on unless they have someone else to turn to who can help translate what you know, what those experiences are. Um, and then also teaching people the, both the skills and also um, kind of building that awareness that this is not an uncommon experience and that um, 
you know, all the negative preconceptions that people have about these experiences are generally wrong. Um, so it's, what, what are examples yeah. of the, the preconceptions you're talking about that, that you're saying we have wrong? Well, you know, terms like psychosis and schizophrenia have a lot of history. You know, they've been in the media, they've been in the movies, you know, and um, people, and, and, and also when someone is experiencing hallucinations or delusions or, you know, those changes in their thought process that can be really scary and they start to worry about themselves and they, they take on all those negative attitudes that they've heard or seen around them. Um, you know, so, and, and that's a lot of really old thinking that has to do with people's fear of what they don't understand, you know, and, and so you know, what, what we offer is a community of people who have lots and lots of experience with psychosis and know lots of people and can tell all those positive stories and introduce people to each other so that, you know, they can see that, yeah, actually there is a way for me to get back to where I was. Hmm. Uh, Kylie, why were you drawn to this particular job? Hmm. Um, one of my best friends uh, when I was an undergrad had his first episode of psychosis um, shortly after graduating. Um, and I tried to help in the way that I could, um, but it just really uh, meant a lot to me to be with him through that. Um, and it combined that um, care in that experience and the meaning in that experience and the interest in sitting alongside of it uh, with the type of like engaged work that I want to do, um, getting to know people over a longer time, um, building relationships, doing, doing together. Um, it's just really meaningful and beautiful. What about the, the end of this, the work together? Cause you've, you've, all three talked about the importance of these relationships, I mean, in kind of concentric circles, um, including family and friends, uh, but also sort of closer in. But at a certain point, this particular therapeutic relationship ends. So, so what is the intended end point, and how do you deal with that transition? Yeah, well, in ESA, there's some, um, there's some flexibility there. It's like, we close some doors, but there's like a window open still. So uh, like still coming to groups or leading groups, um, still coming to family gatherings, for instance. Um, but there is that cutoff of we're no longer your therapists, right? We're no longer your prescribers. And it's often really sad and painful. Um, and we process that together and um, involve the young person in making a choice about what they want to do next and um, whether they want to continue on with a new therapist or a new program, and then uh, working in the last six months to make those connections or to send them on their way. Sometimes they don't want to be in therapy or need it anymore, and that's okay too. Massimo, where are you right now in, in that trajectory? We're getting pretty close. In our last meeting, we actually asked that question. It was about eight months out. So. Mm. Um, I, I've definitely, you know, made the statement that I'd like to come back and help when I can as far as, you know, giving back and my family's on board with that too. So why? Why do you want to come back to give back? Um, because so much was given to me and I just feel like, you know, it's 
easy to relate with somebody else that was there or if you know maybe they don't even need someone that has gone through the experience maybe they just need someone that will accept them you know for what's going on so my understanding is that there are ESA programs in almost every county in Oregon right now but that is not the same thing as saying that that these programs are available to almost everybody in Oregon what is the capacity right now compared to the need well, the programs, you know, we have programs in every community. Uh, right now, our primary, uh, the, the primary thing has been a workforce shortage. And so uh, we have some positions open, including at LifeWorks Northwest. Uh, what, what has the um, workforce shortage looked like for you? And how has it impacted the services you hope to provide? So, um, you know, COVID has changed a lot of things. You know, there, you know, there have been changes in people's lives and, you know, turnover and people going to schools or other places to work. And so the state has had to invest additional money to help boost salaries and to provide, you know, signing bonuses and things. And um, that's starting to really take hold. So, um, in fact, I was in a meeting today where there were three programs that didn't used to have staff that now do. So Tillamook, Clatsop, and Columbia County all have programs, again, which they had basically stopped um, operating. And, and you see that as a direct result of, of st a state infusion of money? Yes. Or, or just the system slowly working itself out of pandemic mode? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. You know, different communities have different challenges. So some of the coastal communities and the smaller communities just, uh, they just, they, not everybody wants to move there, right? You know, so depending on the community, there are, there are different challenges that they're working through. And that's a big part of my job is just to stay with the communities to keep them, you know, to keep them working on, you know, the, the improvement. So um, we have programs that are, most of our programs across the state are accepting people like within a very short time. Uh, so it's, it's, right now it's more the exception than the rule that that's not happening. Uh, but one of the commitments related to ESA is a, a leadership commitment at all levels. So it includes Oregon Health Authority, it includes the agency leadership, the county leadership, you know, focusing on building the infrastructure that's needed for the population. So not just building a small clinic that'll take just a small number of people, but understanding how many people in the community are likely to develop psychosis and building the infrastructure so we can respond in real time. Massimo, um, you've been in the receiving end of different aspects of mental health care in the last couple of years, in the inpatient setting and outpatient setting. What do you think is most missing in our patchwork of mental health care in Oregon right now? That's a difficult question. I can tell you the good things that are there. I don't know if I can tell you necessarily what exactly was missing. Um, <laughs> well, you know what? Then tell me the good things. I, I'd, I'd love to hear good news, too. Sure. Uh, you know, from my time in the Mental Behavioral Health Unit, you know, once I was starting to get more on the lucid side, uh, it was nice to be greeted with, you know, a few comforts, whether that was, you know, for me, I, I like playing guitar. And so 
uh, you know, even the other people that were, you know, getting their meds adjusted or whatnot, it was nice to have somebody, you know, to connect with over that. Or I don't know, there's so many, there were so many people that helped me to, you know, I <laughs> probably couldn't remember their name as far as in the, in the mental behavioral health unit, but, you know, I recognize their face and it's a warm, welcoming face. Well, Massimo, Kylie, and Tamara, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Massimo Marola is a student at Oregon State University and a client in the LifeWorks Northwest ESA program. Kylie McDermott is an occupational therapist in the program. And Tamara Sale is the director of the ESA Center for Excellence. Coming up after a break, we're going to hear about the adolescent day treatment program here at LifeWorks Northwest. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We are coming to you in front of an audience at the LifeWorks Northwest Center in Tigard. We're talking today about the challenges that young people in Oregon can face when they have mental health struggles, plus some solutions that are available. We're going to turn now to one family's experience with the Adolescent Day Treatment Program here at LifeWorks Northwest. Sarah Katie is 19 years old and graduated from the program here last year. She joins us now along with her father, Josh, and her former therapist here, Becca Schweigert. It's great to have all three of you on this show. Thank you. Great to be here. Sarah, what's it like to come back to this building? It's weird. Um, I would say it's definitely brought back a lot of memories and a lot of, I think, just not nostalgia, but I guess just a lot of um, comfort as well. Um, I think that comes from not just the people, but also the places that I've been and the things that have happened here. And I think that really helps to kind of remember how well I did here and how much support I had. Well, then I want to come back to learn a lot more about what, what, why this place, um, why you speak so happily of this place. But I, I feel like... To, for that to make sense, we should probably hear a little bit about what you experienced before. Um, what were the kinds of, of, of attempts at, at help that you had um, been exposed to earlier, and, and, and how were they different? So I don't really remember too much um, in my early life of that kind of help, I guess, because probably because it wasn't there. And when I say that, I mean that I want to say when I was diagnosed pretty young with autism and um, I would say that I didn't receive any real help until things got very serious. And when I say that, I mean I had a lot more intense mental health struggles and challenges, uh, including depression and anxiety. And I don't think it felt very real until um, real things started happening, such as worst days, um, higher levels of depression, um, not wanting to do anything, go anywhere. Josh, I mean, what are your memories of the, the struggles that, that Sarah had in those earlier years, say in, in, in middle school or, or maybe in high school? And and your attempts to get her help. Yeah, it was, um, it was quite a journey, quite a journey. And um, many times um, my wife and I felt like we were not equipped to help. Um, situations were really intense. 
Sarah was really struggling and it was quite a challenge for her. And she was relying on us to be responsive to that. And in many cases, we didn't know what to do. Um, and when Sarah started getting into high school, went to a big high school, great people, great school, but it was way too big. Is it Beaverton it was, High School? Yes. One of the biggest in the state. Right, right. And it was very loud, overstimulative. It was not a, a good environment for somebody like Sarah. She needed a smaller environment, more attention from educators, and a little more support. And um, we learned very early on in our freshman year that we needed to find that support. And uh, we went searching and we in touch with a lot of people that were already helping us and uh, got in contact with new people that could help us down that road. And eventually for her junior year, we found ourselves here at Life, uh, LifeWorks Northwest. But that's, but I mean, you just skipped ahead two, two years. I mean, you, because you were talking about the, the, the real challenges freshman year and two plus years is a long time in anyone's life, especially for a teenager. Um, after Beaverton High School, we went to uh, another school, smaller school, uh, Pacific Academy. Again, great school, great people. Um, but it ended up they were not equipped to help Sarah with some of the challenges that she faced. And we had to go searching again. Um, this time we had to go outside of Beaverton School District, which was a challenge in itself. Um, and then eventually we were able to find uh, the LifeWorks Northwest and, uh, and we were able to be accepted into this program. And that's when she started to really flourish. Sarah, what was different about what you got here? Um, I would like to say everything, but I don't know if that... Say everything. Be, yeah, um, <laughs> I would say a big one was how open I was. I felt myself at older schools like Beaverton High School and Pacific and just throughout those two years before coming to LifeWorks, I felt very closed and like people had to pry me open almost to get me to, sh I guess, uh, open up to them with my experiences and thoughts and feelings. And here it was like that, but I found a sense of almost not immediate trust, but I think definitely a faster curve of trusting the people that work here um, with how I feel because I think uh, when I think back to how I was two years ago or three years ago, I remember how difficult it was to open up and no one should ever have to feel like that. And I just think that being at LifeWorks, it was a lot easier to find support because I felt as if they did want to help me. And at other places like Beaverton or Pacific, the focus was elsewhere or it just wasn't there at all. And that was really hard for me to kind of see, especially as someone who felt like I needed more support at the time. Although the, when you first arrived here, having had those, if not negative, and I, and I appreciate you're both being careful to, to not you know, throw earlier places under the bus, um, but did, did you just think, oh, this is going to be one more place that's not going to serve me when you first arrived? Or did you immediately think this was going to work? So I remember my uh, screening meeting very, very well. Um, I remember my thoughts and feelings going into it. My initial mindset was, this is just going to be like the last school I was at. You know, I'm not going to open up to them. I don't think that they can help me. 
it's not going to be worth my time. And I remember I didn't say very much in the screening meeting. I think it was due to lack of hopefulness. And that was something that really made the transition period a lot longer. But I think that was a blessing in disguise because I was able to take that time to kind of reflect on why I might not have been getting the help that I needed earlier. Mm. Becca Schweigert is with us, as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, who uh, I, I guess was your therapist here no longer. Um, Becca, I imagine that you've had a lot of first meetings um, with, with clients here. What do you focus on in that very first meeting? Um, yeah, so in those first meetings, kind of just humanizing myself is important. I think because a lot of times you have been through a lot of different systems and I think there's varying degrees um, of humanity coming from the people that you're meeting. Not that people are trying to be robots. Um, <laughs> but humanize yourself but, as, as opposed to what, like professionalizing yourself? Yes, feeling, yeah, feeling, I guess, more Freudian and mm. sitting behind a desk and being like, oh, yes, I'm the one who knows everything all of the time. Um, and making sure that it's more of a comfortable, like, you can tell us stuff because we're going to ask you a bunch of really hard things right now. And I don't really want to tell that. I wouldn't want to tell that to somebody who seemed like they were just sitting there judging me from an iron tower or an ivory tower um and so spending time just making sure that you know that this is a safe space and giving the opportunity to take breaks and utilizing there's a really great team here in the day treatment program so showing that we're we're all in this together and we're here for you because at the end of the day you, the family and our clients are the ones who know the most about themselves um, so kind of letting them know that they can take the reins more and that we're we're here for them and to not be just judgy. <laughs> hmm. What kinds of, of coping skills or tools were you able to offer Sarah in particular? Yeah, so Sarah might be able to speak a little bit I, more I'm going to totally ask for that been, question too. <laughs> yeah, like, it's been a minute. Um, I know just a lot of like working on understanding your emotions is a really big thing. Um, especially as a teenager, getting to know yourself. Um, it's very hard sometimes to also know your emotions or there's not a lot of opportunities to get to know those things. So the biggest thing at first is recognizing how you're feeling and then knowing how to advocate for yourself. Um, again, you, you know, teaching clients how to know themselves so that they have those opportunities for, for advocacy and to have, be the front runner of their own story. Sarah, what, what do you most remember? What has most stayed with you um, that you learned from your time here? Um, that's a really good question because I actually did learn a lot. Um, and I, I don't really know off the top of my head, but something that really stuck out to me would be how... I can help other people. That was something that didn't really come up until the end of my time at ADTP, but it was something that I always knew was important, but I never thought I was capable of doing it until, obviously, like right now, sitting here and talking to you about it. But I think a really important part of that was I was getting so much help and support from so many different people here that I felt like everyone deserves that. So it was something that 
I really felt was important and something that if every school, if every job, every setting had it, people would be a lot more happy and we probably wouldn't have this mental health challenge. How different do you think our conversation right now would be if, if we were having this before you spent a couple of years here? How different are you now, I guess is what I'm asking, than, than before? Um, honestly, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation um, because I was so different, but I think that's because it comes from how developed I was and how much I was exposed to. When I started high school, I came from a uh, K through eight school. So I was with the same group of people every day um, and not a lot of differences in day-to-day -day school life. And it was a smaller school, a smaller middle school, so small groups of classes. And it was, Towards the end of my time, unfortunately, there it was a negative experience because I experienced bullying and I experienced um, teachers weren't as helpful as I thought they would be. So when I finally got to high school, I was so used to being in small groups of people and I guess I was so dependent on my parents because I guess I didn't have anyone else I felt like I could depend on, but I think at the two-year mark around when I started at LifeWorks, I realized if I'm going to do this, I do need support, and it's going to be hard to open back up because so many times I had been opening up and ignored or hurt or whatever it may be. So I think that's something that I really wanted to come here with. Josh, I'm, I'm curious, from the perspective that you have now, in a lot of ways, it seems like coming, coming, having come through something and arrived at a, at a much better place, what do you see now as, as a better way that the system could be set up so you could have, as a family, gotten here earlier? Great question. I think thinking back, the diagnosis was tough to begin with. In what um, ways? I think we now have a much better understanding of, of autism and um, are in a better position to to diagnose it. But did gender we, play into that? I believe so. I believe so, and that's what we've heard from the you know the professionals that we've worked with. Um, I think that was uh, that's a big part that girls yes. on the autism spectrum are less likely to be diagnosed than boys. Yes, and then once we finally had that diagnosis. It, it, that was a very difficult thing to get. We, we suspected, we were told, but then you, you have to go through a certain, you got to take a certain test with the right professional in order to get the official diagnosis. And then that starts to open up more doors, but it doesn't open up everything that you need. You still have to go searching for all those different services and people to connect with. It took us a long time to get here, but once we got here, we were, we were having weekly sessions with Rebecca and it was not only helpful for, for Sarah, but it was helpful for my wife and I as well. It's, in in it's, what ways? Because she helped us think through some of the challenges that we were not equipped, we felt like we were not equipped to deal with. Sarah, you said that one of the things you've realized relatively recently uh, is that you can actually, you can help people who were in your situation. If, if you 
came back here and, and talked to, you know, a 17 or an 18-year-old, 16-year-old, um, who is sort of, who's just arrived, wh- what would you tell them? I already did that. (laughs) I actually came back here two weeks ago on Friday, and I did a little speech. Um, Yeah, I uh, had a little presentation and um, just kind of talked to all the kids in the ADTP program, um, both new and old, um, about kind of how... I utilize LifeWorks to get the most out of it. And I think it was really helpful for them because there was a lot of good feedback from them, but also I could tell that they were listening and they did want to hear what I had to say, and that was also very important to me. What was it like for you to be able to do that? Honestly, it felt really good because, not only because it does feel good to give back to a community that you love so much, but also that I felt like if it could make one difference in one person's life, that's enough for me. And it, it is hard because I, I don't know what everyone's thinking at the time, and I also I don't know everyone's story, but I try to relate on a general level and keep it at least somewhat entertaining. <laughs> Sarah and Josh, Katie and Becca Schweigert, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Sarah Katie is a graduate of the LifeWorks Northwest Adolescent Day Treatment Program here. We also heard from her father, Josh. Becca Schweigert is a family therapist here. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We're coming to you today from the LifeWorks Northwest Center in Tigard. We've been talking about some mental health challenges that young Oregonians are facing and some possible solutions. We're going to end today with Karen Boss. She is the medical director of LifeWorks Northwest and an assistant professor at OHSU. She helped create something called the Bridge Clinic recently. It's in partnership with OHSU and the Care Oregon CCO. Karen Boss, welcome. Thanks for having me. What was the big idea behind the Bridge program? Well, I think we've heard a lot today about challenges in in getting access to care for youth and families, and how do we help families when they're at a really vulnerable time, when they really need timely, quick access to the right mental health services. And so that's the idea behind Bridge Clinic, is how do we set up, um, you know, how 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 do we do better at kind of getting those quick connections for families. And Bridge Clinic serves families who um, often are, you know, youth or teens who come into the emergency room for significant mental health problems like depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicide attempts, or youth who are maybe in uh, a higher level of of psychiatric care, like an inpatient hospitalization and are ready to be discharged but but don't have outpatient care. And we know that if we can get those... those, um, those youth and families connected to good outpatient care, they'll do better. They'll have better health outcomes. They won't return to the emergency room as often. But our system doesn't often have a lot of those resources in place. So it can be challenging if, you know, if, you, if you're a teenager in the emergency room, you know, after um, 
maybe a suicide attempt and, and trying to figure out like what can the emergency room staff offer you? Like what resources can we get in place quickly? Um, we have a lot of shortage in Oregon for uh, hospitalization level of care or residential level of care. Um, and so the Bridge Clinic is really about getting outpatient level of care quickly for those families. And so the emergency room team can send in a referral to our Bridge Clinic team at, at LifeWorks Northwest. And we get those families, those patients scheduled quickly, often within like days to, to weeks, kind of in that time frame, so that they can come in and see one of our child psychiatry fellows and get a really good evaluation and assessment, get a lot of time to ask questions and, and, and get everything answered, and then come up with a treatment plan, um, including medications, if that's appropriate. And then our Bridge Clinic will stay with those families until they get connected to longer-term mental health services. Without and, and this just started within the last year, right? Yeah, just in July. So without this program, where might those young people have ended up? Yeah, I think the reality is, is often that it just takes a long time without services. You know, families might be on wait lists for different services, often on multiple wait lists. But it can take a long time. And when I say a long time, it can mean months even to even get that so, kind so of services. So somebody ended up in the ER or potentially in an inpatient psychiatric yeah. facility, and then they're discharged back to home with, um, with no plan in place for them to, to actually get good mental health care for months. I think everyone tries in the system to, to get those good plans in place. Um, but it can be really challenging when we just don't have the openings, the slots, so we don't have the availability. So it might be that, you know, maybe their pediatrician is covering their psychiatric meds for a while because they aren't able to get in with a specialist. Or, um, you know, maybe kind of piecing together different things. Um, we get a lot of family feedback from the Bridge Clinic, and some of the feedback that we get from families, you know, one of the families wrote... Um, one of the things they really appreciated about Bridge Clinic was, was having us there because there were, there were no other openings for care for their child. And a lot of families give similar feedback that it just feels really frustrating that, you know, they're, they're trying and, and, and people in the system are trying to help them as well, but there's just very often limited resources for, for child psychiatry in, in Oregon. Um, are you adding capacity? Are you adding new healthcare practitioners or are you just... I, I shouldn't. I don't say just as if it's not significant, but or are you primarily creating a, a new way to hook up patients in need with existing practitioners? Yeah, it's both. So one of the really exciting things about the model that we set up with Bridge Clinic is it is this collaboration, like you said, between Care Oregon, OHSU, and LifeWorks Northwest. And what we do is our, our Bridge Clinic is staffed by, by OHSU child psychiatry fellows. So that means there are psychiatrists who are specializing in child psychiatry and are just finishing up the last stages of their training. And I think that's really important. I know we spoke earlier today, we heard a little bit about different workforce shortages for the ESA program and how that can affect availability of services and how we're going to fix that down the line. I think one of the, one of the strategies is to, to get people interested in community mental health and community psychiatry. And the way to get people interested, I think, is to get them exposure during training to a really positive setting in community mental health. That's what got me interested in, you know, in community mental health in my job and uh, my, my career tra trajectory was, was really getting exposed to it when I was in medical school and residency. What um, was it that you were exposed to that, that made you follow this as a career? Yeah, I think um, 
So I, I focused on community mental health at many at different stages in, in my med school training, and then I went to a residency that focuses on community mental health as well. And I think that gave me the opportunity to see what it's like. And a couple of the things that I think are really important is um, it's a very team-based approach, which I think we heard about today, you know, and in many different ways at, at LifeWorks Northwest, we are very team-based. I think we also have the opportunity. It's a really rewarding field to be in. Um, it's really uh, doing really meaningful work. Um, and and um, I think that's something that for trainees to see that when they're thinking about, like, what do I want to do when I'm done with training? Like, what kind of setting do I want to practice in? It's really important to be exposed to that. There has been a... Um, almost just by necessity, we, we're talking in in Tigard, and there's there has been throughout this conversation a, a Portland metro area focus, um, whether it's it's Portland or uh, Washington County. Um, and my understanding is that the Bridge Clinic is is also is largely for for young people in the Portland metro area. But we've heard from our health reporter at OPB, Amelia Templeton, and others that. Um, that rural Oregon, um, because of the distances and the the lack of providers, they have their own very specific version of mm-hmm. a mental health crisis. So what options are there for something like Bridge Clinic in the rest of Oregon? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's one that's on um, on a lot of people's minds in the in the mental health and psychiatry world is how can we, um, there's such a need for this kind of vulnerable moment, right, of connecting people who who maybe went into the emergency room or, you know, are having a kind of crisis level. Um, and how do we not just treat the crisis, but how do we get them connected to, to ongoing care that's really going to help stabilize them? So Bridge Clinic is something that I, I know um, we're thinking about a lot and how to expand it. You know, the population we serve at, at the LifeWorks Northwest Bridge Clinic is um, is, is focused. It's a youth population, but there's a need for this, you know, for adults as well. Um, and then, as you mentioned, also geographically, like there's a huge need for this across the state. I think one thing we're thinking about in in psychiatry is how do we use telehealth as an option to help support um, help support families and and youth who are in the not in the metro area or in areas where we don't have as many psychiatrists. And I think there's a lot of potential for that as well. Karen Boss, thanks very much. Thank you. Karen Boss is the medical director of LifeWorks Northwest and an assistant professor at OHSU. Thanks very much to the Oregon Community Foundation for making this series possible. The next installment of this series of conversations about significant issues that Oregon is facing and potential solutions is going to focus on treating substance use disorder. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.